From the cradle to the grave, you are measured against the yardstick of average, judged according to how closely you approximate it or how far you are able to exceed it. A modern conception of the average person is not a mathematical truth, but a human invention, created a century and a half ago by two European scientists, Quetelet and Gorton, to solve the social problems of their era. It's what Todd Rose speaks about in his bestseller, End of Average. Juliana Jackson has dug deep into the minds of data analytics leaders, people that work every day with measurements and metrics, to uncover what mental models they have built to help them understand the world. Join us while we focus on the stories of data analytics leaders and how they use mental models to challenge others to think differently by deviating from conventional approaches. Hey, Simo, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Wow, I, I really want to get that book now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good book. Yeah. I'm very happy to have you here today. I have been preparing myself for this episode. And um, today we're going to talk about meaningful data and maybe what are some mental models that you are working with today to understand the, the world better. Yeah. So... I've never seen anyone as dedicated to serving a community as much as you helping them think better because the ultimate purpose of the mental model is to help people think better, you know, helping people improve themselves and making progress in their life. Tell me, how did it all start for you before you were in the position that you are today? Well, like everything is, is, is a continuation of everything else. So, I mean, I would have to go back to, you know, previous lifetimes to figure out just how did I actually end up here. But I think that for me, the most significant things were kind of, I, I have a background in academia. So I've been, I've been studying at the university. I was, a, I was a linguistics student and then I graduated and I thought that I want to continue in linguistics and get an academic career out of it. But something just pulled me out and, and the kind of little nerd, little geek within me just wanted to see how can I turn, you know, what I love as a hobby into a profession. So I stepped into the world of IT and, and you know, working with software and software development. I've been coding my whole life, but this was a chance to kind of kind of make it a reality. So that's that's how I'm in the digital world. That's that's why I'm 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 working with with customers who have problems with their apps and their sites and their analytics and and marketing tools. But how I got into the education area is maybe a similar journey. I mean, when you're in academia, you're exposed to a lot of education. Like everything around you is is about imprinting education. And I was never really, I really loved school, but I was never really happy about the way that things are taught. I mean, this, there's this, the, the teacher-student dynamic is always a bit compromises those who are either further ahead or further behind. So it kind of finds this leveling, level level playing field. And, and I always thought that the greatest way to learn is when you have peers around you and, and like a community way of learning. And that's always been a wonderful way to um, Constantly compare yourself to others, but in, not in a bad way, not like an imposter syndrome way, but to figure out where am I today and compared to others and what do I still know? Who are my like North Star people who I want to follow in this? And so the way that things happen just really organically, when I when I started writing about Google Tag Manager, it was first for just uh, like a hobby blog, but then I noticed that people are actually using the information and it becomes kind of addictive. So I, I, I'm really appreciative for what you said that I, you know, I, I serve communities and I help people think better. Well, I, I have to be honest, and that's just a side effect. The, the main thing for me is I get an immense amount of value out of it by constantly having to visit basic questions, even like what is a tag? How do you do JavaScript? It might sound like it's really mundane, but it's actually 
same as, you know, I have to sharpen the knife every time I go to the kitchen. I have to keep the edge sharp. And it's just by doing that kind of basic stuff that it happens. So for me, education is is definitely a, a two-way street. I love to help myself. And I'm extremely fortunate that while helping myself, other people benefit as well. But it, it's definitely not 100% altruistic. There is always something like for me in it as well. Obviously, it has to be some sort of reciprocity because you need to grow as well and move towards, you know, your own uh, journey. It's interesting because you started off learning about how to communicate better with people and how to use language, but Mm. then you move towards communicating with machines better. So it's like two different types of languages. True, and I, I, yeah, it might be even more rewarding sometimes to talk to computers than to human beings. But that's just to finish um, this mentality in me—the antisocial person in me talking. It's not only Finnish; Romanians tend to be the same. It's like it's so. an Eastern European thing, yes, probably. I think so too. I think so too. That, that's really awesome. I found out about you when I was very young. I mean, I was maybe like 24, 25. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I was trying to get into product back then. And um, I was just looking at you and I was saying that I would never be able to do stuff like this because what I think you did also, which, and I'm not trying to like big you up, but I think you had like hunger and your hunger to learn more kind of inspire people to be as hungry as you are. And, you know, you basically, that's why I think you are very much serving the community because it's not only the information, but it's also the fact that your behavior and the way that you present yourself, because you're a very humble, very humble person. And I think that's what makes people ultimately drawn to you, in my opinion. And it makes people, you know, support you further. And I think it's awesome. I had a question for you today. So I did a bit of research (laughs) background, like things that most people do not ask you usually in podcasts. So I, I've read that you're a big fan of the ukulele. I am. <laughs> I, it's going, but it, it's interesting. <laughs> it is. I know how it sounds, but I never played the, the ukulele before. But then my in, internal nerd, I, I, I was researching for facts, you know, not so many known fa- facts about this instrument. So I found out that in contrast with the guitar, the ukulele has a high low string. So this means for anyone, probably mostly no one that doesn't play that doesn't know right now, but it means that the strings are not uh, tuned upwards continuously like on a guitar or any other string instrument. So this this is this this high low string is what gives the ukulele a lovely sound that you know that sound that we all love. So the low G tuning provides a fuller sound and is particularly suitable for guitarists and soloists. Mm-hmm. But the gist of it is that you compromise a bit of the typical yuka sound. So I want to ask you when it comes, this is the crazy question. So when it comes to understanding data, where would you say that the high-low string happens? Like what are we compromising in order to make sure that we give the lovely sound of data? Wow. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so I, I have to talk about the ukulele just a little bit too. So Do I, it. So it's yeah. So so you, as you as you explained well, it's 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 called the reentrant tuning. So the uke has like when you when you strum a guitar, you start from the lowest bass string and you and you tune up. And and on the uke, the lowest string is is often tuned an octave higher. So it's actually the 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 one of the highest strings on the instrument, and it gives you this kind of a, a harp like sound. It's, it's and you, and when you play like finger finger picking, you get a lot of interesting patterns because you can treat the lowest string as a melody string when whereas in a guitar it would be like a bass and accompanying string 
So you can't really do a, like if you wanted to play jazz on the ukulele, it's really difficult to use it as a as a kind of accompanying instrument because you can't play a walking bass line, for example. And that's one of the reasons why many people who take the uke and 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 want to use it as an extension of the guitar, for example, they they actually tune the lowest string to a low or the first string to a low to the regular like low tuning so that it sounds like a guitar and they do this because they want to maybe they want to play some bach or maybe they want to play some some jazz or blues or maybe they want to uh, have a fuller sound but as you said it it it's no longer a hawaiian instrument at that sound it doesn't have that that really ringy trebly sound that uke is really famous for and so now that you asked this <laughs> this wonderful question i actually have have an analogy for you and it's very it's very topical right now so Let's talk about GA4 for a moment. So Google Analytics 4 is the new version of Universal Analytics, and, 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 and Google is technically forcing everyone to move over if they want to keep on the Google stack. And one of the things that's going on is that people who have been extremely familiar with Universal Analytics, they, they look at GA4 and they try to figure out how do we make this look like UA? How do we use it like Universal Analytics? How do we get our bounce rates and our session scope conversion rates back? And how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we? And they, and they try to you know, pressure the engineers to turn it more into universal analytics. So now let's take, taking the uke analogy, I think that if you want GA4 to sound like universal analytics, you need to tune the lowest string or the first string back down because you, you need it to sound like universal analytics. And sure, you'll have a, a spiffy inter- instrument there. It's only got four strings, whereas universal had six. So it's no longer comparable, but you can maybe play some of the same stuff and, and have that sound. But you're misusing the instrument, you know. You're 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 not using it how it was designed. You're not using it how generations of <laughs> how do I turn this Hawaii and Google Analytics uh, <laughs> uh, Luther Luther's sorry instrument builders have designed the instrument to look like. So in my opinion, like the way to use GA four is to embrace the fact that it doesn't have a low string anymore. It's it's its own unique thing that has a very very wonderful sound, which reminds you occasionally of universal analytics and maybe if you want it to look like universal analytics you need a couple more instruments around you maybe a bass uke maybe a guitar maybe uh something else but the thing is that you really need to kind of appreciate the fact that it really is its own is its own thing and 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 just enjoy the different sound and that's why by the way that's why i fell in love with the uke I, i had been playing guitar for for you know 15 almost 20 years and i i just found myself not having the time to practice anymore and 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 so I, I i think it was on my honeymoon actually we went to we went to the states and we were driving around and we found a guitar shop and i went in to buy a guitar and i came out with a uke because i started counting like wait this has only four strings and the guitar has six so there's like one third less learning and <laughs> the uke is actually very similar to like a harmonica for example that it's very easy to learn you can get couple of chords out you don't need to know any finger patterns you just put your you know your first finger on a string and you get a chord out and so you can get sounds out of it almost with no practice like my son four years old he's already like learning and he's it was extremely easy to get the basic sounds out but it has a, like a an amazing amount of variability like there are virtuoso you players james hill Jake Shimabukuro, Israel Kamakawiwo Ole, if I pronounce his name. <laughs> this whole bunch. It's an amazing instrument in its own right, but people still think it's just a toy because it looks like a toy. 
So um, maybe that's also for the GA4. It, it looks pretty crappy, but it is. It can really be an amazing instrument when you give it give it some time. So that was an elaborate answer to your very very <laughs> often... elaborate question. <laughs> I like the answer though, but I want to I want to ask like one more thing around what you said because you made me think right now. So I was talking to Matthew Brandt about tools in a totally random conversation and. Like what we're trying to do with analytics for is basically a workaround in a way, because if we, and I don't want to deviate from the subject of the podcast, but I cannot help myself with this question. But in general, I see even us, you know, like even me in my day-to-day job, I feel like we're looking at tools to solve some problems that tools are not supposed to solve, which is, you know, data governance, which is data hygiene, which is data integrity. So like, I feel like sometimes we just take tools because we're looking for a workaround. But like, I feel like most of the tools right now, be it analytics, be it, I don't know, mixed panel or whatever, amplitude is just like some sort of workaround because we think we need some sort of data. So I think we're also compromising a lot on our the way we govern the data and the way we look at data and the way we work with data just because we are looking for that special metric to yeah. save our lives. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true to a point. I think the so this idea that tools are somehow central in in, a, in the paradigm of doing data is just flawed. You know, tool it, when you look at it, all these tools they do the same thing. They collect data and then they map it. They, and they have this ingestion pattern and and so the and people are constantly searching for tools. You know, whenever a company has a problem, they figure, they think about what's the next tool we get so that we can fix this yeah. problem, rather than look inwardly at their processes. And that's always been a problem. And, and one of the problems with Google Analytics in the past has been, and it's it's been presented as this jack of all trades. You know, it, it has all that it, it can do anything. It can be a marketing tool. It can be a product analytics tool. It can be an app analytics tool. It has integrations to CRMs. It has integrations to ad networks. And so companies have you know, obviously fallen in love with it, or, yeah. or maybe they fall in love with it out of necessity, not necessity and not, not necessarily because it's a good tool, but so kind of locked themselves into the paradigm. But the fact is that th- there's a million tools out there. And it's, so the problem isn't finding the right tool. The problem is figuring out what is our process and how do we make it better? And then we start figuring out what the right tool for that is. And most likely, like I'm, I don't want to come out sounding like a GA4 fanboy because I certainly am not. I'm very critical of the tool and, and the way it's so. out. <laughs> Excuse me. But but the fact is that as a data ingestion mechanism, as something that pulls in data and stores it in a data store, it's perfect. But it, it has all the components you need. So you yeah. can turn it into whatever you like. You just might need a bit, a few more components in your data pipeline. So there's this... And I think that people should be ready for that. I think we're, we're no longer living in a world where we have one tool or one stack that gives us instant satisfaction. And we shouldn't. We should be more critical. So now we, I think that companies that want to take the next step seriously have to start figuring out, like, we can't just delegate our data practices to Google anymore, whether it's for uh, privacy reasons or for integration reasons or for data retention reasons. But we can still use GA4, but we need to figure out the larger whole yeah. Um, the whole data pipeline and not just not just delegate i think that's the problem that's been in, in the past i yeah and i think it's also something about the company's maturity because you have to reach some sort of uh, level of understanding of how you operate with data before you just jump on everything and i see how people are jumping right now and taking the ga4 course with us and the school you know like it's great but like you have to first 
create the you know the processes mm. and the objectives that you want right. to achieve with that data because the data can tell a story but it can tell a total different story than the one that you want to you know you, you want to hear so yeah I, I like your i like your answer and i think <laughs> And I think you're right. And I see it. And everyone is crazy right now about GA4 and everyone is talking good things and bad things. But at the end of the day, I think, as you said, it serves its purpose as it is. But you have to be more critical into what you're putting into your tech stack to solve the problems that you want to solve. So, yeah, I, I like this answer. This is yeah, one of those quotable ones. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it really is just a tool, just like universal analytics was just yeah. a tool. I think the, it's it's a bit misguided to imagine that Google would create a tool that would solve your organization's problems. They don't give a crap about your organization. They want to build Absolutely. a tool that can be used by billions. And and that means that it has to be generic. And generic is, you know, generic is what kills companies. Trying to trying to imagine that my company is exactly like your company. So the that's why the tool should be used just as a like a, you know, putty in your hands. You need to model. And I this is something I actually talked about for years and years and years. And I, I, something I emphasize in my CXL courses as back in the day is that we take an analytics tool and we customize it to fit our organization and not the other way around. We don't take an analytics tool and then figure out how do we make our organization work with this. That, because if you have to start thinking, I got this flashy tool that costs a lot of money and now I have to figure out how, how do I change my organization to work with it, then you've probably made a pretty bad purchase. Yeah. And it's such a valid thing for any type of business and any type of business model. We we were having, I mean, we are having issues right now with product analytics in CXL. So we're trying to figure out tools and whatever. But at the end of the day, I just started learning SQL. And, mm. and I realized that, okay, you know what? I should probably just focus on this and work with Metabase. And my life is a bit easier because I can see what I want to see and we're working from the back to the to the to the start like instead of just saying okay we're gonna take amplitude and it's gonna save our life mm. let's just first look at our warehouse let's just you know figure out what we're trying to 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 monitor and then we go and uh, you know make the decision so yeah i think if you let the tool decide your business it's, it's, yeah. you're really big shit <laughs> so it's, it's not you know it happens when when you when your company invests in and let's say, let's say invest in IBM or Adobe or any one of these like huge enterprise stacks that come with a bunch of different parts that you need. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's it's a bad decision to invest no. in Adobe or IBM, but, but I'm just saying that when you are locked into a vendor with, an, with, with, a, with a huge stack that covers your entire pipeline, it becomes more difficult to find that kind of agility and flexibility. You can't just say that, okay, we have this, you know, 5 million a year uh, stack here. Let's just remove that one part and, and build our own ETL there. Well, it probably won't work because you have a, a stack that's exactly fine-tuned together. So there's this, this this type of customization and and the ability to, to look at your processes and then figure out the tools. And, you know, SQL is just, that's one of the universal things. Like if you need to invest in learning, then SQL is always going to be a good one because you-, you I think, love SQL. That's that's the that's how data is formatted, and and you really you really need to get Matt Gershoff on this podcast because he's going to talk to you upon end about. I will. You know how you can use SQL to actually change your entire way of looking at the world. It's like mind blowing. That's how I feel. So I did a JavaScript course. I said, "Oh my fucking god, this is it mm -hmm. for me," and then. I started, I took this, I was looking in Google Cloud. I really like Google Cloud a lot. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, yeah. I have no problems, but I really think Google Cloud is awesome. 
And I was looking at BigQuery and the integration with uh, Google Analytics 4. And, you know, I was thinking about the CDP version and whatever. And then I was talking to Matthew Brandt on LinkedIn and he said, why don't you try to SQL? I was like, man, I cannot, like, a JavaScript traumatized me, you know? <laughs> After finishing the JavaScript course, I was like, okay. And then I would go through the course and I realized, fuck, I'm actually good at it. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. And I think it really unlocks a total different type of mindset. Like, it helps you communicate better, only use the essential things in communication, which is so important. And you can plan out things better. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 oh God, I, I, I would probably have have him <laughs> come and talk about how, how SQL changed the world yeah. because I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, but I noticed besides this that you are uh, focusing a lot on data privacy, and I read, uh, I read a bunch of you know of the stuff you're you're writing about, and I saw on uh, the Measure Slack, mm. and as you know. As you should, right? As you should talk about this and anyone should talk about this. So I have another loaded question for you, which I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to admit to people that are going to watch this that I'm going to (laughs) read. So when I started this podcast, I needed, like anyone doing a podcast, a hosting platform. And I decided to go to the, with this uh, pretty known company that is, you know, used for hosting your podcast on. So I knew I knew it from before because I used it when I was working at my last job, but I never actually just was the uh, then customer. So I paid for a year membership, and then because I already paid and my next payment date was in next year, I just decided to delete my credit card, right? Because like, what's the point of having it? There is my data, right? So when I go and I try to delete it, I couldn't. <laughs> And I read their terms of service and they said, sure, you, of course you can delete your payment method if you delete your show. Oh, God. And I'm like, what the fuck is this, you know? And then I go to their customer support because I'm the type of person that is petty like that because I just wanted to see what is the explanation. So I go to their customer support and they said, yeah, but we have to have your credit card associated for the next payment. I'm like, it's next year. I just want to delete my personal data. Sure, but you delete the show. So, like, I mean, of course, okay, they have the loophole that they are stating this in their, you know, terms of service and so on. But they are not communicating when you make the purchase. So, like me, it feels, it makes me feel very unsafe about my data and very scared because I cannot have control over my own assets. So I just want to ask you and talk to you more because you know way better than me on this topic. How much control, how little control do you think we really have on our data on the internet? And it's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a, a very, very difficult, but, but a lovely thought experiment. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I am certainly more interested in data privacy things uh, now than I was maybe 10 years ago for many reasons. GDPR being one and, and browser tracking protections developing yeah. being another and... And also, maybe I've, I've in my as I grow grow older and more venerable, I have started thinking about uh, ethics a bit more as well. Having said that, I'm I'm certainly not what you would call a privacy advocate. I'm not, I don't I don't enter every discussion frothing at the mouth about how do we handle privacy here first. I'm I'm more of a of a kind of an engineer who loves to build stuff and lets others worry about what the privacy implications are. But having said all that, I do certainly have thoughts on this topic. So this this idea of control is certainly something that I think that everybody recognizes that we should have, and in the European Union, for example, it's 
it's enshrined in our charter of fundamental rights that we European Union residents have a fundamental right to data privacy. You know, it's 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 as inalienable as as freedom and and the right to property and all these other things. And that's also one of the reasons why there's friction between the EU and the US, for example, in data transfers, because US doesn't recognize it as a fundamental right. So this we as individuals, of course, would like to be in a situation where we are in control of the data. But the problem is that everything we do online generates so much data. Like the, the, the footprint is so enormous that it would be impossible for us to control that. Like it just wouldn't be tenable. And that's why we delegate uh, trust and we delegate our responsibility to the companies we work with and hope that they do right by us. So they, they take care of our data, they are data controllers, and they take care of it. And then these companies then, then um, forward information to vendors, and they have a similar agreement in place where they, they trust that the vendors um, handle that data properly. And then there are these uh, mechanisms in the EU for, you know, for requesting all of my data or for deleting all of my data. But the, the thing is that it's still impossible to control, even with all these mechanisms, it's still impossible. There's a lot of like anonymous data leaking. There's there's little traces of you all over the place. And even though you might not be personally identifiable from them, so they have no personal data attached to them. Yeah. Just the fact that you're leaving stuff online is should be concerning. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have to know exactly everything I've done or where I've been, but just the idea that someone somewhere might be able to join dots together from anonymous data and figure out that it was me is is definitely working. So it's yeah. it's really it's I, I don't think there's a way to actually so so to your question, how little control do we actually have? Well we have actually very little control when we look at the whole extent of data. We can we can try to use browsers like Brave or or Tor. We can try to use VPNs, but just the way that the internet is built, the client server architecture means that somebody somewhere always has a bit of information about you that combined with somebody else's information can actually you know create a very concrete picture of you even though you've tried to anonymize yourself everywhere you know even even like hash data which is technically unbreakable can be reversed when you have a similar hash somewhere else or or blockchain which should be like anonymous we've seen examples where it's not so it's it's all Backwards. we can do is yeah it's it's all we can do is kind of trust that the regulators know what they're doing trust that companies will in the end have enough incentive to do right by us or that the companies that are doing right are being favored over those who are not. Unfortunately, black hat mechanisms of, often generate easier revenue or generate easier profits simply because they are doing illegal stuff. So it's, you know, it's the more you think about it, the more you depressed you become because you, you figure out that, wow, there's like so many companies know so much about me and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Um, so it's unfair. It really is. It's an imbalance. And it's, it's, I, it's in my view, it's not fixable. It, it is treatable, but it's not fixable. It can be treated. It can more and more companies, more and more regions can adopt privacy re regulations and more and more companies can have like an ethics, ethics standpoint. But in the end, there are companies like Google and Facebook and, and Apple and Amazon that are just as large as countries themselves. So they can yeah. show you that, yeah, we're doing everything right, but behind the scenes, they can do whatever they like because they're so big and they have so much momentum. So it's it's hopeless <laughs> in a way. It so, is. So I try not to think about it too much. Yeah, when I saw Social Dilemma, it really messed me up. Like everyone knows because it's so true. And, you know, like 
this is my job, you know, I have to use behaviors to make sure that, you know, you're buying and like we're we're like some sort of accomplice to all this stuff and it kind of sucks in a way. <laughs> it does, but it, but there should also be lenience towards like I I think one of the problems I have with with GDPR for example is that it kind of groups all activities into the same bucket when you're when you're violating personal data collection which yeah. I think is certainly something you should pay attention to like from a legal basis point of view. But there's a there's a huge difference between using Google Analytics to see where somebody came from and, and did they have an add to cart event versus, versus collecting personal data to be added to a, a direct marketing list and selling it to the highest bidder behind the scenes. Like they're just not comparable. And, and which is one of the reasons I find the current, you know, mayhem around Google Analytics in Europe a bit, it's, it's crazy and it's a bit, it sounds like they've just taken the easy scapegoat rather than going after the real violators who are actually, you know, but let's not go there because it's just going to get to another depression discussion. No, 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 go but, there. Uh, <laughs> go there. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's just, you know, as somebody who uses data for a living, I, I do feel that there's not enough, you know, space to move around here when all I want to do is I could collect anonymous data if the platform lets me do it, but I would still like to gain some insights that, you know, go past the session, for example. So I, I wish there were some mechanisms in place. But as a, as a again, as a, as a resident of the EU, on the other hand, I'm happy that I'm people are yeah you're protected like, yeah yeah exactly so but yeah it's 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 difficult there are so many people in the world and there's so much data collected and there are so many companies with vested interests there are so many governments with vested interests and all of these just are in conflict like there's there's no common ground to be found and the common ground is very very small and that's the only place where we can introduce those legal regulations in do you think there's enough education for you know residents like us about and in general like do you think there's enough education to teach us about how to i guess leave a less heavier footprint on the internet or be more safe on the internet do you think we're focusing enough on that there's a lot of education around it but there's very little incentive to do it i mean the it's currently very difficult so everything is basically opt out it's very difficult to prevent uh, your, you from being tracking, you have, you have to go through extraordinary measures. You have to install VPNs. You have to install a, a browser that's favorable to that. You have to say no to all those constant prompts. So the, the, why should I do that? I just want to browse the web. So that's the, what the, that's what the kind of like, quote unquote regular internet user is thinking. I just want to browse the web. I mean, there are even browser extensions that just click yes on every constant prompt just to make them disappear. So you don't have to click anything yourself. And that's, that's where we are. People just want less friction. And if, and, and then there are, there's a very small minority of people who want just absolute privacy. I, I really believe it's a very small minority, but they are the most vocal, of course. And then there's this overlapping segment of people who want less friction, but also more privacy. So I, I think that we're, we're looking at how these different cohorts are, are going to move in the future. I'm not... And, that, and that's also one of the reasons why we have browsers taking the initiative, like Apple, why it has the tracking prevention mechanism in, because they don't believe anymore that users know enough about this stuff. They don't know what a third-party cookie is, so they don't know how to block it. And that's why browsers are doing it for them. And this is going to happen more and more in the future, but browsers don't want to destroy the web experience. So if you have a website that relies on some mechanism that a browser has decided is a tracking mechanism, then the website won't work anymore. And that's not good. Because then I'm going to hate the browser. I'm not going to hate the website. I'm going to hate, why did Brave not work on this website? And I'm going to, I'm going to be mad at the browser and not the website itself because I don't understand the mechanism. 
So I, I, I do hope that like data literacy and privacy literacy are part of every curriculum in schools these days. I hope so. At least in Finland, there are many schools moving forward on this and curricula, but it's moving so fast on the one hand, like technology is moving so fast and it's moving so slow on the other, like regulations are moving so slow. So it's, it's really, um, it's really a very conflicting situation. And I personally don't know how, what the end game is. There's just so many different paths to it that. <clears throat> yeah. Like it's happening, but it's not equally distributed. Exactly. To, to, to people. And yeah, still on this education topic because this is like mostly something that I'm very interested in talking about with you. So let's let's go back on curriculums in schools and you were saying in the beginning that you see in schools that students are being graded by how far or how mm. close, you know, they are to an average to, you know, an average eminent student or whatever. <laughs> so um you you have been saying in the past because I've been listening to a lot of your 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 uh, uh, keynotes that the data quality is directly proportional to how well you understand the data collection mechanism. So I want to think about our kids because we both have kids and imagine like they're in school. I mean they are obviously in school, but imagine they have an exam in school and you you know your kids are very smart you know they're very talented and they're hungry to learn and grow but they have these exams that do not consider their own individuality and their own talents they just are testing these kids to see exactly how far or how close will they you know match to an average result based on this aggregated data from all the people that took the exam and you cannot like it's basically my son let's say my son hates school but he's a very smart kid and he you know he's learning how to code and like he's a very you know different kid but he sucks in Rom- in Romanian classes mm. but when he's going to have this exam no one is going to care about the fact he's good in maths and he likes that he's just going to be scored based on how other kids with total different backgrounds with total different lifestyles are going to be doing so what do you think about the way we are we're grading and basically measuring kids intelligence in school through through the you know the current exam system? Wow. Well, I'm I'm not a pedagogy expert even though I did actually take some classes in school about, uh, in university but But you're a parent. Yeah, I'm a parent. So yeah, definitely. My my kids aren't school age yet, but I can certainly start seeing them then gain these individualistic characteristics that I really hope a school would nurture. I, I kind of understand the dilemma that if you have a public school system, it's impossible to cater to a, a 30 student classroom. It's, it's impossible to figure out what the individual characteristics are. And, and, and that's why you have these very sad situations where people who are struggling aren't helped, but they're actually left behind. So they're, they're, they're forced to take, retake the class, for example. And then you have, a, you know, in history, you have full of examples of people who have turned out to be geniuses and, and like business whizzes who have just quit school because they couldn't do it. So there's this, the school system is definitely like um, playing with averages and, and it's a completely understandable thing. Like that's, if, if you want the majority of your students to gain a basic level of education, that's what you would have to do. You would have to cater to the bell curve, like the middle part of the bell curve. And and I think that there's a there's a lot of value to it. I think there's a that the school system is giving you. I, I don't necessarily think that you know when you have to learn what the key dates in the history of Finland are, you don't necessarily have to remember those for the rest of your life. But what you are gaining is like just like with a computer, your memory is being trained. 
like you are trained how to handle this type of information and how to structure your mind. And so that when you then in at home or at your hobbies or when you go to higher education, if you do, or when you go to vocational education or when you just quit school, your brain will be wired in the right way. And the right way in, in Western civilization is this type of, of data processing that we have. You know, we, we take information in, we store it, and we map it. And there might be other cultures, there might be other, other ways of doing it where creativity is emphasized more. There are school systems in Finland, private schools, where they use methods that are super individualistic, like completely tailored, and you're kind of given free reign. The kid is given free reign over their own education paths, and that might work for some as well, but it does require quite a lot of independence and creativity. So I, I'm, I'm definitely anxious that when my kids go to school, I want them to be treated like the, the, the king and the queen that they are and get like complete, wonderful, re inf like, reinforcement training where they're just told that you know focus on your strengths and and let's let's tell us what you want to do but i know that that's not going to happen so i just hope that as parents we can help them build their own you know individual qualities i hope that the hobbies take they they take will do that i hope that the friends they'll get will help them do that and you know i'm, I'm an example of the system I, I went through that system and i i feel like i i got enough out of it to go to university and i got enough enough out of university to fuel my own personal goals so i, I just hope that as a parent that i can grow my educate my children to be curious super hungry about information creative individualistic have a good imagination be industrious you know all these positive qualities so that's all I can do as a parent, I think. And and I want the school to do their best at not, if they see that they're lagging behind, not just, you know, lift their hands. Them, yeah. But otherwise, I'm, I'm fine with the current curricula. I, I think that they, it, 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 it can produce, and it does produce extremely, it produces a horrible word, word here, but it does incentivize kids to kind of research. And that's what I want. I think that if you don't have the hunger to do research, you are, you're looking at a very, very difficult life ahead of you if you don't have the curiosity to tackle life's, what life throws at you. But I don't, I, I don't have a... Finland is, has constantly been at the top of these... That's what I wanted to say. Yeah, Finland is like 50 years, light, light years ahead of everyone else yeah, in the world. Yeah, but that's that, I don't I don't necessarily think that that okay that tells you something. Maybe it tells the Finnish kids are sheep and they're happy to take whatever education throws at you, or maybe it tells that we've we've built this. Kind no, of, you built. Well, we it, it but it does turn into a situation where you have you know you have daycare, then you have preschool, then you have school, then you have college, and then you have university, and it, it's a very very clear continuum. Like yeah. you, you, it's extremely clear that when you're in university, you can almost draw a path to what you learn in daycare. Like it's, it's everything is built on the top. So, and that, that works for, for a large population of Finnish people because our, our entire society is based on that education. That's why we have such a high rate of third of higher education as well. But what about that ever increasing population of people who don't fit into that? Like they have nowhere to go. Like if they fall out of the wagon, uh, during school, they won't be accepted to college or or, or higher, uh, whatever the the analogy is in other European countries. They won't get into university, and they might not want to, which is fine. But what if they do want to? They can't get in because they don't have the papers. They don't have the the track record of education. So then they'll they'll need to go through extra classes in vocational college or something, which might further like just disinterest them, and 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 they might disenfranchise because of that. 
not because it's wrong to like i'm not saying that school is something everybody has to go through in the same way but it does open so many doors that if you want to visit those opportunities you need to go through that exact funnel and i don't think that's fair i think there should be more alternatives ways yeah there should be more ways similar maybe to how the u.s works that you have like a track record of extracurricular stuff and you write like uh, cover letters and essays like applying for a job almost yeah it should be possible to get your what kind of education you like i still think finland has did a lot of work and research into bringing the best out of uh, students because I have friends there. I know that I worked even for a company in Finland and like for, for Finnish people, university is like very serious and it's not, mm. it's yes. like part of the culture of Finland, like to be educated to the highest degree. And I think the way you guys do it is very, I guess, I think it's better than most, you know, where I come from, for instance, which is very, you know, archaic and based on things that, are not necessarily valid anymore so i think yeah. i think more countries should look in general at what finland does because it's clearly it's clearly way better it uh, is there's, there's also the the fact that we have an extremely high tax rate that that pays for that higher education yeah. and get managed and then we have a and this has been going on for for generations so we have a, a track record that good good teachers want to come to finland and teach so yeah. the the problem with taking the and this has been tr- like Education has been said that it's one of our greatest exports, but at the same time, you know, we can't take the Finnish model and imprint it on a country that doesn't have the same foundation. And when we try to do that, there's a lot of friction. So, so you know, there, the, you know, there's a reason why countries don't have the Finnish model, and the, and those countries. That's why it's that's why I think it's so unfair to co- compare like Finnish grades against some country that doesn't have a similar system. It makes no sense. Like, what does these PISA results? What do they actually say? They just say that according to this particular funnel, Finnish has been extraordinarily Finland has been extraordinarily good. But there are so many other ways to do this and 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 so many other ways to thrive that in Finland it's work, but I I, I would I would like to think that other countries or other cultures and other regions try to figure out like what is our culture like? Like maybe yeah. our, our 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 people aren't just don't want that type of a funnel and they have a more creative approach or or a more individualistic approach and, and all the power to that in that case. And Finland could also learn from others. You know, it's it's not an excuse. If we're doing well, it's not an excuse to not continue researching how other people are doing it. Of course. I think it's a really cool topic. And I'm a, I'm a college dropout as well. And uh, I couldn't fit. And I'm looking at my son. And he doesn't fit either. And it's like the school system is birthed from... Uh, was this scientist called Taylor that was basically the one that created the plants and how people work in plants. And it's the same thing. The, the bell rings, you go in your break, you eat your lunch, you go back to work. So it's like from, from when we are born as humans, we are trained to become workers. And it's, it's, and it's fine because I guess, you know, like at the end of the day, it also creates discipline and order in society because otherwise we would be hitting each other in the head with a stick all the time, you know, so it, it, it still matters. But yeah, as you said, I think every country should do their own research in, you know, in their culture and try to apply things that fit with that culture. Because of course, like you cannot take the exact Finnish model and put it in Romania, yes. which is very, you know, different. But I think, you know, countries should be inspired to see, you know, different models and try to figure out what what works uh, best for them. And there's and and you know this idea this idea that you know 
there are just again so many examples of where where college and even university have been completely secondary to one's aspirations. You know, I, I studied English language and linguistics in college uh, in university, and I was really happy doing it. Not because I thought that wow, I'm going to get a kick-ass job out of it, but because I knew that wow, these are the best years of my life for studying stuff, and I'm do- studying what I really love, like what I really like to study, and I'll worry about the job later. And I, I always knew that you know I've. I spent my teenage years in front of a computer for a reason. I have the foundation and now I'm working in a, in a wonderful kind of, I'm working in a wonderful way with topics that I never took a single school lesson for. I never learned coding. We didn't have coding in schools. I never took a coding lesson in university or, or college, yet I'm coding full time and then teaching about coding. So, you know, I, I, I didn't need college for that. I needed college to help me figure out like, you know, how is my brain wired? How am I, how do I approach research? How do I look into source information? How do I compile a database for this information in my mind? And so I, I, am appreciative of that, but at the same time, I know lots of people who are far better coders than I am and far more successful who have, who have dropped out of college or haven't even taken like a basic education and they're doing perfectly fine because they figured out really early on that what I want to do is not taught in schools. And yeah. I don't necessarily need even the mental models that school gives me. And they should; these people should be absolutely should be encouraged and celebrated. Like my son, we were playing a board game, and he told me that I want to be a I, I want to build board games when I grow up. And I said, "Wow, so yeah, cool. being a game designer is actually a really good good job." And and he was now he's like, "Yeah, I want to be a game designer." And then he wants to be a fireman on on the other hand. But so we need to figure out how those two coexist. But. <laughs> If that means that, you know, if he's really serious about, he's four, but if he's really serious about that, and if he shows aptitude that, yeah, I wanna, I'm going to keep coding and keep writing stuff, then I don't mind if he drops out of, out of college. I don't mind if he doesn't go to university. I, I have to be that parent that has to, uh, I haven't talked with my wife about this yet, but <laughs> I don't mind. You know, if, if, if he knows for sure and he, and, and he has the skills and the backup plan, like plan B, if things don't work out, then obviously, of course, like I want to be that parent that encourages uh, this type of uh, deviation from the norm rather than one that forces him to go through the through the same steps I did. I love that and I relate to it. And it's the same, the same with, with how I feel with my son. Because he told me I don't want to go to college. I want to I want to learn how to code. I want to make video games. I was like, I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to buy you a computer and I'm going to teach you what I know and then yeah. push you further. Like, it's important for us parents to be that person that, especially in the way the world is today and how much it has changed since we were in their position. I think parents like play a very critical role in making sure yeah, their kids are happy and content. Like my son called me earlier to tell me that he was bullied in school because of oh, yeah. his hat. And it's like, wow, you know, like this, it's so hard to yeah. deal with this stuff. And I said, don't worry, you know, like you're awesome. Don't take your hat off. Yeah, Just exactly. hold it. And it's, it's, it's like the things like this are going to come in their life. Like if I don't want to, you know, go to college would people bully me because I got bullied because I dropped out. So I think it's, it's space for everyone's individuality. And I think, as you said, we should celebrate, you know, deviance <laughs> more. But it's- yeah. 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 Thank, thank you for uh, thank you for that. I just want to switch the lane because I know we don't have too much time, and I had I I, I would speak with you for hours. <laughs> so for someone like you that works with measurements and metrics all the time, what would be some mental models or schemas? Right, I like to call them schemas. That your specialization, I mean specializations. <laughs> 
has uh, created for you on a personal level? Like, I mean, the way you live your life and the way you interact with the world, like what did, you know, Simo from with GTM, with uh, analytics, with coding, what did that do uh, for you on a personal? I think, I think it actually goes back. Well, well, from a, from a, from a coding perspective, obviously, like problem solving is something I just love to do, and and from the same thing with my education stuff and the blogs and everything, it's just problem solving. I, I really, really love to solve problems. So if somebody has like a like a measurement mystery, like what what happened with my data or why isn't this working, then I it's 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 like honey to a bee for me. I, I really, really, really love that stuff, and I and I love doing it. And so in that way, I, I've certainly like everything I've done with coding and everything I've done with my blog and everything. It's it's helped me become a better problem solver. And um, especially if it's a technical problem, but I think it goes further. Like when I when I was studying at the university, I was and when I was working on linguistics, I was really imp- interested in the empiricist approach, like the empiricist versus theoretical theorists. Like so, I, I want to see things manifest in the world for me to believe in them, rather than just take some theory that an, some old dude in an armchair has decided is fact. So this kind of empiricism, and it's of course very relevant to data and analytics. We need to see something in data to believe that something happens. Evidence, yeah, evidence, yeah. evidence-based approach, and and so empiricism in, in general is something that I completely subscribe to. And I've, 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 I don't, I don't do it consciously. Like I don't necessarily like if somebody says something, I don't, I don't say, well, okay, well, show me the data because I think that's like a really annoying way to to enter a conversation. But I do really take the time to validate stuff that I hear and see maybe on my own time. So, so if somebody says something, I put it in the back of my head and then I do my own research, so to say, it doesn't mean that I'm like an anti-vaxxer who does their own research. Yeah, I know. I did my own research. <laughs> that, 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 that phrase has actually become kind of poisonous these days. So I, I won't use that anymore, but, but it doesn't mean that I, I am certainly like, I'm looking for data and I, and it, and it has impacted me in that way. At, at the same time, Having worked with data for so long, I've also realized something that that's that is that, and this is also like a epistemological thing that there are no facts. You know, there are only a very very few universal laws which are particular to our physical understanding of the world. So, the things that we we see now, we see all this data for something, and it can be like an insurmountable amount of data. You know, we we believe in in a certain model, a theoretical model, it can be overturned when a compelling enough counter-argument is introduced. And that's something that many people, especially in Twitter and, and social media, kind of forget, is that there's you can believe absolutely in something, but it's part of the scientific approach to be humble enough to accept that your belief might not be factual. There might be an, an, an even more compelling approach. Like, you know, Newtonian gravity was like the, the shit for, for centuries until Einstein showed that, you know, it only works with like large bodies and not on the, on the subatomic level. So, so we, we had this theory that everybody believed, believed to be like a way to describe our universe. But once you provided enough context to a specific scenario where it didn't apply anymore, it, it was complemented by another theory. So in the same way, you know, that, that's also something I, I wanna, want my children to, to do is that, you know, do research, feel free to believe in, in existing theories and, and feel free to think that other people have figured it out, but don't delegate your own Thank thought you. processes to others. Like, like always keep in the back of your mind that there are, it's very likely that even five billion people can be wrong at the same time. And there are certain things in the world that billions of people believe in that I think they are wrong in. I'm not going to go to what they are, but but it's it's entirely right to, to question authority and it's entirely right to question theory. But you have to do it 
with a compelling counter argument. You can't just say that I think laws suck. I think it's it sucks that I can't steal candy from a shop. You have to have a compelling argument what the world would be like if if everybody played by your rules. So it's it's like a philosophical Immanuel Kantian uh, imperative argument again that you have to you have to have a compelling argument for something and it has to apply to the majority of people for it to be. Oh, that's a long-winded answer again but i think that's no i like it i you know what you made me think about the difference between because you mentioned social media so social media is where the old uh rhetoric agora is happening yeah. right now everyone is re- re- everyone is a rhetoric yeah. but there's very little very few philosophers and the main difference between rhetoric and philosophy is that rhetoric is just about showing off and just being you know yeah. uh, a good orator but while philosophy actually unpacks, you know, uh, mindset and unpacks the way your brain works. So I think I think we need more critical thinking and we need more. I guess I love how you said it, like we shouldn't ex- not externalize, but we shouldn't delegate our thought process to uh, a herd or to a group of people just because, you know, it's easier to do it. So I like it. And it's not it's a great answer, actually. And it, it, it makes me, you know, think uh, more Um I have one more question, and then I promise I'm done because I don't want to call you. I don't want to hold you. Uh, I told you I would probably talk to you for three hours. I asked this mostly to. I asked this in the past to the other guests because it's something that makes me laugh a lot. So I want to see what you uh, what you think. So you know we're always taking personality tests to define who we are in the world, and. I just, again, like I have a problem with, I mean, I don't have a problem generally with averages, but I have a problem with looking at averages sometimes. And I, I want, I want you to, I want to ask you, like, what do you think about the boxes that we are trying to put ourselves in? So we're taking a test to find out we're virtuosos or we're analytical thinkers or we're whatever. And then we believe that so much that we actually integrated in our day-to-day life. Like, is it really like, what what do you think? Would you take an online test to figure out how you are as a person? That's the better question, actually. Personally, no, I would never do that. I would not hold it against anyone who does it. I do think it's a really douchey thing to have in a job interview, for example, to force people to take those personality tests. That's a really good question. I think that, you know, there are groups we consciously associate with, and then there are groups we kind of subconsciously associate with. And, you know, consciously it can be a political party or it can be your, your, the, the company you work with or the industry you work with or like measure Slack or something. It can be your Twitter group. It can be your, your little bubble. It can be your family if your family has a certain trait, for example. And I, I, you know, I think that's fine. I think we all need, we need like a, a, a peer-to-peer network all around us in different directions to just to get the type of... You know, I use those groups to get confirmation that what I'm doing is 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 a good thing for me and the people around me. You know, I, I use it to confirm myself with that. I, I don't have the skills to evaluate myself in the world in a way that would tell me that every action I take is the perfect one for my future. So I, I use peers for that. I use, I use them to evaluate that what I'm doing is the right thing. So when I get confirmation via Twitter or Slack that my, you know, for example, my question helped, my answer helped someone or I get an answer to my question, then I feel like, okay, yeah, this is great. I'm, 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 I, I got satisfaction out of this, and maybe I help someone while doing it. And the same thing, if I, if I were part of a political group, I think that would, that would be the same thing. I would be looking for a confirmation that the way I think the government should be run is a good way. 
and and if I find out that hey, by the way, all these people I'm with are actually Nazis, then I would find okay, yeah, maybe this wasn't a good group for me. So that's why I, I left it. So in that in that way, you know, it's for me, it's important to have these groups, but it's also important to understand that these groups are might not have everything figured out either. So again, we get to the point of delegating your thought processes. I don't, I don't personally think that data and analytics is the best job in the world. Very, I actually very much do not think that. Uh, I don't think that people collecting, like there's this like data always wins line of thinking in analytics that as long as you collect data, you're, you're, you're ahead of those who don't collect data. And I don't believe in that at all. I think there's a lot of value to be gained out of intuition and, 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 and experience and anecdotes and qualitative stuff rather than just, just metrics. So I, I, I use these groups to confirm myself with that as well. You know, I, I use these groups to gain, gain kind of negative reinforcement for these things as well. That, yeah, every day I'm in Measure Slack, I'm slightly more confirmed that, yeah, maybe data and analytics isn't all it's, meant, all it's kind of cracked up to be. But it is for me, it's a, it's a great community. And for that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be associated with it and I'm happy to have my life reflect on those groups that I'm part of. It's the, I think it's the subconscious groups that worry me. And this is like what social media is creating these bubbles. I don't know. I don't know which bubbles I'm part of. I'm, I'm a bit worried. Am I, am I, you know, I'm, I'm very, I have a very annoying personal trait, which is like, it's, oh, it's really, really annoying now that I think about it. But it's like, I, I found a band and I loved it and I was like really cool when I found it. But then when others found it, I'm like, oh man, it's not cool anymore because now others have found it too. Like I, I want to say that I was, I was among the first people in Finland to figure out what Muses, the rock band is, because I, I was in their very, very early gigs when they were- I love that band. Yeah. And I was like a super early fan. And now that they've blown up, I'm like, oh, come on, Muse. I, I remember them when they were cool. I'm like, that's a super annoying trait, but that is me, unfortunately. And I, I do it subconsciously and I've tried to work fixing it, but it does lead to things like, just as a very recent example, you know, when GA4 was introduced first, I was really excited with well, Firebase Analytics. I used it a lot. I wrote a lot about it before it was called GA4, before it was called App Plus Web even. And now that it's becoming mainstream, I'm, I'm kind of getting to a point again, like, oh, GA4, come on. It's such old news. And, and, and I, I remember when it was still a cool product analytics tool. So this is the kind of, I'm worried about what groups I've subconsciously become part of by being having that kind of a douchey attitude. Because that, that's a I don't think it's douchey. I, I think it's, I think, it, well, nah. thank you for saying that. I, I personally do think it's douchey. I, I hate it when I see it in other people. And then I realize that, wait. I actually, I'm actually You're doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's just an example of, you know, I might say that, you know, oh man, these anti-vaxxers are, are just idiots. Like they don't see the research, but what if, you know, I'm the same way. I don't necessarily accept everything that the government says just because they have, it's the government. But what yeah. I fail to fail to understand is that they have people working 24 seven on these questions. Whereas I'm just like, I'm reading the Twitter headlines. Yeah. So that's the one that's I'm not worried about the, the groups I'm part of because I feel like I, I've built enough individualistic tools to dissect the information. And again, we're going back to education. This is what education is for you to, to be critical of your source. But I'm worried about people who don't have those tools who are pulled in and, and, and aren't, don't have enough skills to kind of parse that information. And I'm really worried about the subconscious groups that I'm, I'm part of that I didn't even know. I don't know what people are talking about me and, and do they think that I'm some, some type of person because I belong to some group that I'm not aware of. I have no examples for you, but this is the kind of stuff. I don't either. I, I, everyone that I talked about, like you were always, you know, 
like I never heard anything, you know. And if anything, like I think the fact that you are so open and um, vulnerable about the fact that you are looking to validate your learnings and to confirm things, I think that shows your character more than anything else because obviously you are in a position where you're known internationally for something because you work so hard. Like no one just gave you this and said, Hey, you know, like whatever, like people put you, people, people put you in this position because you have helped them. And it was like one to one, one to few, and then, you know, one to many, and then it was many to many. And I think you have built that on your own. And I don't think anyone can take that away from you because you were sitting here and you saw a mountain and you went for the GTM and you were sitting alone. And then when you saw that people came on that mountain, you moved to another mountain. Yeah. And it's, maybe it's, it is, it is a bit of a, a warning flag that, <laughs> that, um, uh, there has to be uh, uh, like negative sentiment somewhere, and I would love to know what it is, just to be able to 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 you know help myself grow go beyond that. But of of course, like I I, I know that I'm I have I have certain qualities, especially in how I let, let me put it like this: once you answer a question ten thousand times, you might become kind of short in your answers that you become shorter in your answers. You might not have the same decorum you had in the beginning. So I certainly recognize that sometimes when I help people i can be come off as really not well rude is maybe taking it too far but can get really like snippy and and really like unhelpful in a way in the response and that's something i've recognized about myself and i think that's something that anybody working education needs to self-reflect is that you tend to forget that people asking the questions really don't know about this stuff and you put your expectation because i know this stuff i've been doing it for years and years and years and that's something that I'm, this is something that I'm consciously working on. How do I, you know, put myself in other people's shoes who are asking the questions, get the kind of empathy that, that is required in some of those answers. And it's definitely something I'm working on. It's, and it's something I've heard negative feedback about. So I, I know that it exists and I'm happy that people. That's a great feedback. Yeah. It makes me wonder if I'm doing the same. Yeah. I think anybody working education, because when you write a blog post or when you do a course in CXL, you don't know what the hundreds or thousands or, or sometimes even millions of people exposed to their content. You don't know what their individual you know, Background. understanding is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when I tell people like A is B, maybe there are people who have no idea what A is and what B is. So it doesn't help them to know that there's a, there's a correlation between the two. So, so this is the type of thing that also makes it difficult to do an online course on Simmer, for example, because one of our one of the reasons we started Simmer was that we can have a, a platform that we don't have to work on twenty four seven. We can create the course, yeah. be available in the community, and that's it. But as it turns out, there are so many people having like individual questions here and there. Like, I didn't really understand this one bit, even though everybody else might have understood. We have to figure out how do we make it work for this one single person as well. So true. I'm I'm getting ready for your courses. I'm not there yet. I need to I need to be I need to get to that level there to get to do your courses. But I'm working on it. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was awesome. Before before we wrap up, I just want to know if the number, your phone number that Charles uh-huh. has, uh, the Charles Farina has on uh, Measure Slack is actually yours. And if people are calling you, did anyone ever call you? <laughs> so Charles. Yeah, Charles Farina is is my is my friendly nemesis on a Measure Slack, and he's he's put hit my he's put a phone number in his Measure Slack profile. The phone number is not mine; it's the phone number of the president of Finland's office. Oh my 
my God. He calls it, they're calling the president of Finland's office and nobody's <laughs> calling that number. But I, I appreciate the trolling from, from Charles. He, he can really take it to the next level. So please don't oh call God. that number unless you have something so to funny. say the president of Finland. Oh my God, that's so funny. I, I'm going to record with Charles too and I'm probably going to make like an intro with uh, calling that number yeah. and see what it says. Just to, just to... call it. Yeah, I, I want you to, when you have Charles here, I want you to call that number together with Charles and then have a discussion. I will, I will. <laughs> I will, I swear I will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? Where they can follow you? I think the best place is Measure Slack. So if you get in. If you get in, it, it takes a while. Most people get in at some point if they if they provide their details. But that's join.measure.chat is the way to find the application form. It's a great community. There's I think there's over twenty thousand of us now. Data analytics, marketing enthusiasts. That's one place. Twitter, I'm most active on in social media. So Simo Ahava on Twitter. There's my blog on simoahava.com if you're interested in analytics, tag management, digital marketing articles with a technical twist. And there's Simmer, of course. So teamsimmer.com is our online course platform. And did I remember, forget something? And LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. Please don't connect with me on LinkedIn. <laughs> please do not. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible platform. And I would love to not use it anymore. But yeah. Oh, come on. I, I am on LinkedIn, unfortunately. Yes. For, but do not connect with Simo on LinkedIn. Yeah. you can, you can Feel free to connect. I'm, I'm just going to say yes to every single connection request. But unless you're selling something to me and then I won't won't say yes. But I, I really don't like to using LinkedIn. So Measure Chat is certainly the, the 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 best ways for that. Thank you for being here. You will find all these links in the episode notes. I appreciate your time. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening or watching on YouTube. Thanks see for you. having me. See you soon, Simo.